Hey everyone, so before I begin today's episode, I want to talk about something that has impacted all of us in an unprecedented way. Since I recorded my interview with Saima Mir about 10 days ago, the situation has escalated to the point where coronavirus is now a worldwide pandemic. President Trump has declared a national emergency and people are social distancing to prevent the virus from spreading. As we continue to act consciously on the coronavirus, let's keep in mind the many communities who are left especially vulnerable. Let's think of the people without health insurance who cannot afford to test for COVID-19. In many states, a test for an uninsured person can be over $1,000. Think of those among them who are especially at risk. People with compromised immune systems, the elderly, pregnant women, people who live with chronic health conditions like heart disease and diabetes. Think about the overwhelming number of people who cannot afford to miss work. For those, self-quarantine and social distancing could result in their financial demise. And we need to have options set in place that allows people to prioritize their health. Many of our friends in the service industry are now left in uncertain situations because they rely on what? Tips to support themselves and their families. Think about them. We understand the concern about going out to eat. I would never suggest anybody to do that. But next time you get a carry out order, please tip generously. Let's also think about nurses, doctors, grocery store workers. Think about students who have limited financial resources, who are now left displaced after many of their schools are closing down or basically going online. And of course, think about our immigrant community. Please keep in mind that immigrant families who are in detention centers, who don't have access to the proper resources, ICE raids are still happening, by the way. Non-citizens, not just those who are undocumented, are at risk because they are restricting their access to key resources because of their fear over becoming a public charge, a decision which was upheld by the Supreme Court in January. Lastly, Let's be mindful of how we can be allies towards our friends in the Asian American community. We should all be disgusted with the acts of racism that have risen in the wake of COVID-19. Assuming that someone is carrying the virus based off of their race is not only ignorant, it endangers their safety. This is not a race issue. Don't make it one. In this concerning time, we at Immigrantly invite all of you to use whatever privilege you may have to advocate for those who are more vulnerable than you. Obviously, large-scale solutions are out of our hands and in the graces of our elected officials. But ask yourself this, how can I support those who may not have the means that I do? And in the end, if you know of any organizations or crowdfunding efforts that immigrantly can support, please let us know. You can reach us at our email info at immigrantlypod.com. We know that it's an alarming time, but we can all do our part to care for and uplift each other. And now to our today's guest, Saima Mir.
emancipated Muslim woman. These are the words that Saima Mir uses to describe herself, along with award-winning journalist and writer, wife and mom. They say that the best stories come from lived experiences. Saima's career is a striking testament to that statement. She's a powerful writer who uses her personal stories to challenge notions surrounding patriarchy, Islam and parenting. As a result, she has produced narratives that explain the intersection of identities, religion and politics. The biggest thing a reader can take from Saima's work is that an individual's agency must be claimed unapologetically. Her writing simultaneously educates and empowers the communities she's writing for. But even a reader who doesn't share her background will find something to relate to because Saima writes in a way that draws on the universal themes of what it means to be human. I am so excited to have her on my show. This is Immigrantly and I am your host, Sadia Khan. We're talking about smashing the patriarchy. We're talking about making a situation where men can be open about their feelings Hmm. and not hide them because it's beneficial to men as well. This whole patriarchal structure where men just, you know, bottle their feelings and carry on and carry on is detrimental to their mental well-being. That's why we have such high suicide rates amongst young men 16 to 25 here in, in England. Thank you so much for coming on my show, Saima. I am so excited. How is 2020 treating you so far? 2020 has been amazing for me. I'm just having the amazing, most amazing year. I signed my first book deal for a novel and it got optioned by the BBC. So, yeah, it's going really well. And how is the whole coronavirus thing going in London? Because everybody in the US is so concerned. And I was thinking about it today when I was driving to the studio. We are all concerned and some of us are like panicking. And, you know, I was thinking, how do we draw this line between prudence and panic? So what's going on with Londoners? How are they dealing with it? Oh, it's really interesting, actually, because here people have been stocking up on toilet paper which I'm really, really confused about because I really don't understand why we need to do that. You know, normal tissue is fine and painkillers. It's mixed. So some of some people are worried about what's going on because we're reading that Italy is completely shut down. And then there's a very, there's kind of mixed as well of stiff upper look Britishness, which as well, maybe this is just all a bit overrated and actually we don't need to worry. So we're kind of mixed, falling between both situations people are self-isolating if they've come back from holidays in Italy so my neighbor self-isolated for two weeks um, but it's been found clear so yeah we're just seeing how it goes really and you have three little children right all under the age of what seven that's right absolutely you've done your research (laughs) (laughs) and I was thinking it must be really hard for you as a mom especially with a one-year-old to hear all this craziness around corona well it, it is but from everything I've read it's more concerning for the elderly yeah children seem to be dealing with it very well so I'm more concerned about my parents really my father is diabetic and my mother had cancer about six years ago lymphoma and she survived that so it's just things like that, you know, where your 
family's immune system is depressed. But my children seem to be okay and they're quite robust. Hmm. So we've been told there's nothing we need to be that concerned about with small children. So we're okay. You know, we're doing lots of hand washing, and <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah, we we all are doing that. Simon, do your parents live close by? Are they in London as well? No. So my parents live in Yorkshire. They're about 200 miles away from me. Oh, okay. So let's talk about your work. Um, last year you wrote this extremely evocative piece about your experience. with arranged marriage and mm-hmm. their subsequent divorces what makes this article so rich when i was looking at it is it's deeply personal right it's it draws on your own experiences and you talk about parental pressures and cultural stigmas and how you navigated both to find self empowerment basically can you talk about the process of writing that article what were you thinking at the time and did you start immediately knowing what you wanted to say or did it unfold along the way it's really interesting that as it happened because what happened with that is i was on twitter i used social media a lot for work and my sister was on there having a conversation with mariam khan who's the editor of the book hmm. and she mariam was saying someone needs to write a book about divorce and my sister said oh you should really talk to saima hmm. and so mariam and i had this conversation about my work and my past and then she just said you've got to write an essay for for the book and i've been a journalist a long time so i've written for newspapers but i've never ever written for a book and you know when you're given this opportunity you sort of think about it and you think of course i'm i'm going to do this so i said yes because a i was hungry to write as part of this anthology about muslim women and mariam's idea was that the book would show a diverse range of women which i thought was absolutely brilliant and also because i'm lucky to be in a position where everything that had happened to me that had kind of the impact of it was not so evident i mean mm. it's there but it because i'm now happily married and i have children so i'd kind of gotten over the big stuff of that i thought so i sat down to write it and it was hard it was a visceral process writing that essay and i didn't quite realize how hard it would be mm. because the things that happened to us i think the painful things that happen they don't really go away we just sort of cover them up and find ways of carrying on the pain it's almost like that thing happens in a position in time and then we move away from that time period and leave it there but it, so i had to revisit a lot of things that i hadn't dealt with shame i had a lot of shame around it why did so, you have shame around it though i had shame around it because i grew up in a culture where arranged marriage wasn't really talked about in a positive way in England you know everyone dates and it it's normal and that's what you do and so when you say that you've had an arranged marriage or you're going to have an arranged marriage there's myriad of questions and but you know 20 years of answering those questions you get tired and then it went wrong for me obviously horribly wrong for me twice and then people ask well why did you do it again hmm. and i didn't have answers for that so there was that was part of the shame I also had shame around the fact that I felt I had had when the first time I got married there was this whole issue around the fact that I was no longer a virgin I'd had sex. Oh, you know, oh wow. Yeah. She's had sex and I felt as if I had been abused. I hadn't. I don't think I in that way I shouldn't have felt that shame but because the Pakistani culture I come from 
kind of made me feel that way. You know, I'd, I'd been married and I was divorced and I should now quickly get married to cover that up. And so I never really dealt with what had happened to me in a positive way. I didn't really uh, have therapy at that time. I didn't really get to talk to anyone, anybody who said to me, you know what, Samo, this is perfectly normal. And this happens. And this was only three months of your life. And you're still the same person you were three months ago. You know, let's try work through this and carry on. So I had a lot of shame around it. And I had a lot of shame around failed marriage. You know, the term we use, you failed at this thing. But Saima, you were a very young when you first got married. You were only 19. So, I mean, a 19-year-old doesn't even know what they're dealing with at the time, right? And then what, from what I understand, your parents supported you throughout, especially your dad, even more than your mom. He did. He did. I was I was actually 21. I was 19 when I got engaged. Oh, okay. I was 21 when I got married. But you're right. It's so young. I think culturally, I didn't come from a culture, the Pakistani culture that I came from wasn't a culture of talking out our problem. Yeah. And so I feel as if I didn't really get to talk about it. And I, and I say this to my mother now, you know, I should have been surrounded by strong people who were saying, you know, Rita, this is okay. Hmm. And this happened to you and it wasn't very nice and we take responsibility, but it's going to be okay. I, I, it felt like the end of the world. And the women I was surrounded by made me feel like it was the end of the world. And my father despite being so supportive, I think he was kind of taken in by this but he didn't know what to do because he saw his daughter in pain. Hmm. And I think he was in so much pain before me that he didn't really know what to do. They were young as well. I think about it now. You know, my mother was my age at that time. And so she, I kind of feel like she, she got married at 23. She had me at 24. My parents were very much in love. They had a lovely relationship. They had never navigated this stuff and they had expected me to have the same. Do you think they also felt some degree of guilt because it was an arranged marriage at the end of the day? You were too young and they probably thought that the decision that they made for you resulted in so much pain. Yes, I think my father felt, I know my father felt a lot of guilt. Hmm. And I, I know my father feels guilt to this day about it. I'm sure my mother did feel guilt, but my mother is the kind of woman who never says sorry. So, <laughs> uh, I think now I try and make peace of it. And I think what it is, is for her, it's so painful for her to admit that she put her daughter in a position. Because mm. I say to her, you know, I say, I mean, you put me on a flight. I was 21 years old. You found this marriage, this match, and you put me on a flight with a guy who was a complete stranger almost. Mm. Who does that? And and I think for her to think about it now, it is a huge deal. She would never do that now to anyone. My my niece, that would never happen to her. You know, my mother would fight tooth and nail to make sure. So yes, I think they have a lot of guilt. They had a lot of guilt, and they still do, unfortunately. But as you were writing this article, you you talk about shame and you talk about pain. Did you have any moments of catharsis? Completely, mm. I think, and the catharsis continues with it. So I wrote the essay, and it appeared in the book, and then the uh, Mariu Khani editor told me that the Guardian newspaper, which is a national paper here, yeah. has chosen to run it 
on one of the days. And I, and I was completely blown away. And I've written for The Guardian before, so I know how it works. But I expected the article to come out and to just, you know, just sort of disappear a little bit. But they had a quarter of a million hits in the first two days. Wow. With an average of somebody spending, I think, between six to ten minutes reading it. So that's immense. And then I've had emails, even now I get emails from across the world from people, from men and women, saying, this is amazing, this is happening to me, thank you for writing it, or men saying, this is happening to my brother, or sorry, my sister. And that whole process of validation and knowing that I'm not the only one who's going through this, and it was normal for me to feel that way when I did has been amazing. It's been, it has been cathartic, actually, absolutely. Hmm. And at the end of the article, you describe yourself as an emancipated Muslim woman, right? What does an yes. emancipated Muslim woman look and feel like to you? Uh, an emancipated Muslim woman looks like somebody who make, is allowed to make her own choices without judgment from anybody else. So for me, because I'm Muslim, I have, and I am a woman who is spiritual and I'm a woman of faith, but I rebuild that every day. But I rebuild it with my relationship with my God on my own. I don't need a third party, a man to tell me, or a woman to tell me what that looks like. Mm. Does that does that make sense? So I read everything I can about uh, all kinds of religion. I, obviously about Islam, I've read in depth, I've read the Quran, and I make my own choices. And for me, the understanding is that I am answerable only to my Lord. I am not answerable to any human being. Hmm. Saima, what do you think needs to occur so that Muslim women can be supported by their communities? And you touched upon it in the beginning, how you wanted aunties and everybody around you and the community to support you when you were going through that ordeal. Has that changed over time? And if not, is there anything we should do to help women who are struggling with these kinds of things? I think, and I think about this a lot, is I got to a point in my life, so I had a lot of negative things happen to me. So I had, obviously, um, first marriage, second marriage, and then by the time I was 25, I had left two, two marriages. And then 27, I was a journalist, and I was working. And then by 30, I was living on my own. And I was free of that. I decided to disentangle myself from the culture. But I was still, I still felt I was judged by it. You know, if I ever went to a wedding and people would say, I would feel as if they were saying, oh, that poor woman, she, look at her, she's got, she's going to go home to her empty house. Little did they know I was going home to my lovely cottage <laughs> and watching whatever I wanted on TV. And there was no mess in my house and I was free to do what I wanted. And I was happy. But I feel as if the thing that could have made that even better for me was to know that somebody I respected from amongst that community or that culture said to me, you know what, Saima, it's good. You keep doing what you're doing because you're not doing anything wrong. Mm. And actually, this is what life is. Life is not about box ticking. It is not about find a husband, have a child, you know, yeah. have a job. It's not like that. Life is ongoing. It is different. It is evolving. And it's different for all of us. So... What I decided to do was to become the thing I couldn't find for myself. Mm. And what I couldn't find for myself was a woman who was a woman of faith, who did understand her religion and was non-judgmental and was supportive of the choices of all women, irrespective of what those choices were. 
And, and I think it's about that. It's about having faith that that individual woman who is standing in front of us, having that difficult situation, is doing the best she can. And the judgments that she's making, whether we agree with them or not, are the bare ones that are right for her in that moment. Have you been mentored to other young women who may be going through the same situation? And what kind of conversations do you guys have? Like, what is the crux of the conversation that you have with them or if you've had with them? So I've had lots of these conversations. They're not formal. I'm not a formal mentor for anyone. Hmm. But if anybody reaches out to me, and, and this does happen regularly, it happened to me last week as well. Someone emailed me to say I'm in this situation. I've got children. My family are telling me that I need to stay, but I know now that my husband is gaslighting me and I don't want to be here. So I get this a lot. And my answer is that it's about confidence, you know, because if I, it, it doesn't matter what I say or what anybody else says. At the end of the day, we all go to sleep alone in our beds. We're lying there alone and we wake up alone. So the thing I feel is that we need to strengthen women at their core. So the conversations I have is have faith in yourself. Mm. And if you're a Muslim woman, have faith that your God will lead you to what your destiny is. And just keep putting one foot in front of the other and ignore what everyone else around you says. Mm. Because what I've seen in the last 20 years is that life comes full circle And those naysayers who tell you, don't do this, don't do that, they are the ones who actually come and do exactly what you've done when it's their time. Yeah. And, I, and I've seen that my whole life. I remember there was a woman when I was getting divorced saying, well, you mustn't get divorced. You should go back and you should make it work. And I see her Facebook posts now. <laughs> She has two grown-up daughters and they're all about, you know, emancipation and women fighting for their rights and having <laughs> children later. And and I really want to say to her, oh, my God, you kicked me when I was down. And here you are having learned the lesson. So why don't you say it to her then? Why don't I say it to her? Two reasons. One <laughs> is because my mother always taught me and it always stayed with me. She said, if you don't answer, the angels answer for you. I don't know how true that is, but, you know, that stayed with me. And second is because we just have to make our own choices, don't we, when they're right for us. Mm. And maybe she just made her choices later. I think she's embarrassed. I don't see any point in embarrassing her now. <laughs> do you know what I mean? She's got she's got with the program. Yeah. So she's ditched the Kool-Aid. So we just kind of let her get on with it. As we mentioned in the beginning, since then you have become a mother and now you're dedicating a lot of work to further dialogue around progressive parenting. And you've talked about effects of the patriarchy on parents and their children. And this subject is so important to me. And I was watching one of your video clips where you talk about how when women become mothers, somehow people try to patronize them. In a way, they become irrelevant. This is what I feel. And it is so annoying as a mother. I got married young and I had children very young. And for me... What I see society does, like once a woman becomes a mother, people like literally reduce her to the lowest levels of intellectual hierarchy. They, yeah, yeah, and they somehow assume that she has fewer brain cells or her brain has disintegrated and she becomes completely yeah. irrelevant. Do you feel that? And how do we counteract all the patriarchy that's targeted at moms? And nobody talks about it as much. I absolutely feel that. I feel that so strongly. And I'm so embarrassed and ashamed to admit that I did not realize that before I had children. 
I just was in the bubble of singledom, you know. I, yeah. I just didn't have a clue. And then I suddenly had children. And I realized that people looked at me differently. And the way they conversed with me in shops was different. Um, so before I had children, I was uh, my career was I was a television journalist. Hmm. So as a television journalist, I dressed a certain way and I looked a certain way. And then you have children. And I my children came along like buses, you know, one after another. <laughs> so I've got three boys. I have very little time to do lots of makeup in the morning. I've really pared down my wardrobe, everything. I no longer wear heels. I live in um, sneakers and, you know, a big Parker coat because it's really cold here at the minute. And I feel as if I am invisible. In fact, I've written an essay for a book that's out next month called The Best, Most Awful Job. And in my essay, that what the last line is that, that I am invisible. Yeah. And it's almost like the assumption is it's the tropes that we put women into. You know, you're you're either the virgin or you're the whore or you're, you know, da, da, da. And so suddenly, as this mother who, and I have decided to be a stay-at-home mother because I, I write, um, suddenly it's as if my opinion isn't of value. Hmm. And it's almost like my brain fell out of my vagina with my baby. You know, <laughs> when, it came, when I gave birth, suddenly my brain went and I was... <laughs> No longer able to think, right? So I find that really hard because I, like you, am someone who contemplates lots of things and I've had a lot of life experience. So, yeah, I completely agree with you. I was reading an article in New York Times. It was written in 2018, but I just came across it recently. And it said, I anti-mom bias in workplace. Once you're like mother and you're working, you're most likely to be passed over for promotion. Your pay grade changes because everybody assumes that you are going to focus more on your children and your family. That's one scenario, right? There, there are numerous permutations and nuances of this. Then there are single moms who are doing two to three jobs, and yet they are facing all this discrimination. Then there are moms like you and I who choose to stay home with their kids and do freelancing. But that's also a privilege which every mother doesn't have. But when you do that and then you try to re-enter workforce, you face so many hurdles. Nobody wants you back in the workforce, although they will say that, you know, there are systems in place which, which allow that to happen. And nobody is talking about it. And at least the article that I was reading said that working women don't talk about it because they're scared that they will lose the jobs that they have. But then why aren't like journalists talking about it, authors talking about it? And you just mentioned an article that you wrote, but I don't see it as much or as big a deal as we see with other things. Yeah, I think I think we're just starting to talk about it. You're absolutely right. We're just starting to talk about it. And I think it's because historically what's happened is that women have entered the workplace and we've been made to fit into the working situation of 1950s man. Mm. That's kind of how I feel about it. The way that 1950s man had where he got up and he went to work and his wife was at home and she looked after everything. And then he would come home and his children were fed and he, his dinner was on the table and that's why he could work all the hours that he worked, right? And for women yeah. to compete, first of all, we had to fight to be in the workplace. So then when we fought to be in the workplace, we had to prove that we were as good as them, if not better. And so, but the thing is, our bodies are different and we are different and we are going to give birth. And so for women to keep their dreams alive of doing those jobs, because, you know, yes, we are mothers and yes, we are women, but we're just the same as men in that those job titles and those email addresses 
do give us a sense of who we are. I mean, they did for me. And it's it's hard, isn't it, to give that up. And then, but then you have this baby and you think, I don't really know how to balance this thing. And I think women don't talk about it because historically, if we did, it's seen as a sign of weakness. Well, she can't do the job because mm. she's got this baby. But actually, I don't know about you, I'm sure you're the same. I feel as if since having children, I have become more productive. I'm able to manage my time better. I have more diplomacy skills. I'm able to multitask in ways that I couldn't. I think I hit deadlines a lot earlier because I have to plan so much. I think it's important for us to talk about it. Absolutely, we do need to talk about it because there is this taboo attached to working mother, you know, to mothers that, as you said, they're less than, they're, they're, they're going to have children, their children are going to be troublesome, they're going to have to take sick leave. Da, da, da. But actually, so are the fathers. And let's be honest, the fathers should be doing it too because we're talking about smashing the patriarchy. We're talking about making a situation where men can be open about their feelings mm. and not hide them because it's beneficial to men as well. This whole patriarchal structure where men just, you know, bottle their feelings and carry on and carry is detrimental to their mental well-being. That's why we have such high suicide rates amongst young men 16 to 25 here in, in England. What I've learned is that every time I tried to balance both motherhood and work, somehow people thought that my work was irrelevant. Even when I go to like pediatricians' offices and all, it's always mom. I have a name. Why yeah. do you have yeah. to call me mom? Yeah. Don't call me mom. Yeah. I have a name. I know I, yeah. I sound really mean and bitchy right now, but... Um, no, I completely hear you because it's suddenly like your identity is gone. Our identity is gone. We're invisible. Like I said, you know, I'm struggling with it myself and I'm trying to work through it. I'm lucky. I have my husband's supportive. Yeah. And so I write on weekends. But the wider society, I do think. I mean, I, I'll give you an example. I was at the school gates dropping my son off one day and there was another mom stood next to me and I said, oh, what are you doing today? And she looked at me and she just looked at me in disgust and she said, I'm working. <laughs> and I thought, wow, I'm working too. Exactly. You know, I may not be doing paid work today. Or I may be doing paper. You, you don't know that. You've just assumed because I shot my son off and I pick him up that I'm doing something that is lesser work compared to you. And that stayed with me. It was like a dagger in my heart because I thought, God, I have a degree. I have a master's in engineering. Yeah. I have, you know, my journalism qualifications. Like you, I've worked for various, you know, and I thought, wow. And I've hustled and grafted for all of everything I have. Yeah. But because I'm not bringing home a monthly paycheck, this woman had assumed that I was having some kind of jolly where I was going to go home and put Netflix on, put my feet up. And I thought, wow, as a, well, coming from a woman, that level of disrespect really threw me. Yeah. And I think that's part of what planted the seed of, I really need to get to get with the program and smash the patriarchy and my sons need to not be part of this. The other part of patriarchy that you talk about, though, is how, as you mentioned, how boys are treated and how they are taught not to show their emotions and they have all these pent-up emotions and you talked about suicide rate. And you have three boys, right? How are you planning to counteract that and let them show their emotions and cry? And it's okay to cry if you're a boy or a man. Everything you've just said. 
Mm. Everything you just said, we never say to our children, you need to man up or stop crying in that way. Um, if they cry, we let them. I, you know, I'll sit with my children for as long as they cry, as long as I can. Of course, I'm a mother and I have three of them and sometimes I get impatient and it's like, oh God, I can't deal with this anymore. <laughs> but yeah, we talk a lot. We read a lot of books around inspirational women and also inspirational men who are role models. And we never talk about lesser, there's no such thing as lesser work. In my husband's family, his mother told me that uh, men don't cook in our family, which really was another stab. Like, <laughs> no, 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 this is not lesser work. This is a basic survival skill yeah. that everybody should have, male or female. You know, this is not going into the kitchen and cooking or doing laundry is not something that is optional. It is something we all do because we've got to do this to survive. So it's that. My children see, I don't go out to an office, but they see me work. They see that my work is important, that my husband makes sure it's important. And yeah, that's what we do, really. And Simon, you are a freelance journalist, as you mentioned. I know for many writers, the idea of freelancing is simultaneously, it's appealing and scary, right? How has your career evolved as a freelancer and What have been the challenges and high moments in this process? So I was at the BBC when I met my husband and I was a workaholic mm. and a work junkie. And I lived in Yorkshire and I quit to, when we got married, I quit and moved here and I decided to freelance. My husband thought it was a really strange decision, but I said to him, our marriage will not survive. if I continue in news because I literally was a junkie when it came to news. Mm. You know, I loved I loved that nature of the newsroom. And so freelance, it felt like a really good option and, and I was a bit naive in that I thought it would be pretty straightforward and easy. It wasn't, obviously. But I was lucky in that soon after I won an award from the Commonwealth Broadcast Association, I won a World View Award, which meant that I ended up in Pakistan for three months. My heritage is Pakistani. My grandmother was from there. So I did some reporting from there and I built some contacts at The Guardian and The Times, which was just, which was brilliant. And I did that. And then I wanted to write a novel. I've always wanted to write and I was working on that. It's been hard to keep the momentum of freelancing and children. And I'm really lucky that I have a husband who's was able to pay the bills and cover the mortgage and things like that while I was doing it. But yeah, it's just a question of keeping going, making sure you're resilient, pitching over and over again, developing contacts, being clear in what you want. Yeah, I don't know if that makes any sense. I think most freelancers I talk to talk about how hard it is and how... It just feels really convoluted. <laughs> Talking about your stay in Karachi, I remember reading somewhere that you were trying to document stories that your nani used to tell you, right? Yeah. And so what was the experience like in Karachi and what kind of stories have you been able to document about your family, your maternal grandmother? She lives in Karachi, right? She lived in Karachi, yes. My nani used to live in Karachi, And I used to spend all my summers there and I had amazing memories of, of Karachi. It was this safe haven for me. Mm. And we used to sit in the garden and on the lawn at about four o'clock and drink chai. And then she used to cut <laughs> fruit and then feed me fruit and tell me all these stories. And she would tell me about the creation of Pakistan. 
in partition. So my daddy left on the last train that left India for Karachi. She was in the last, on that last train. Oh, wow. And my father was a, was a year old, yeah, and she was with her father. So they had refused to leave at first. And my father's grandfather had said, uh, the Sikhs are my brothers, I, I'm not going to leave. And then when the violence spread, and worsened, those very men had come to him and said, it's for your own safety, you must leave. Yeah. And so that's why they boarded that last train. And she told me that when she saw my daddy coming off the train, she was holding my father and she was dressed in this velvet suit and she was wearing everything that she owned. So, you know, she used to tell me stories like that. So my family is originally from Kashmir about five, six generations ago. So she would tell me the story she had been told about her grandparents her grandfather had flame red hair and green eyes and he would <laughs> ride a horse. And her grandmother was this woman who would ride a horse from one village to the next, which I think at that time must have been amazing. So she would tell me these kind of stories about these really strong characters. And strong women. And strong women, yeah. They really inspired me. She, and then she would tell me stories, Islamic stories. So she always told me the story of, Hazrat Khadija, this was after I was divorced mm. and she took me with her to Pakistan for like three three months, I think. And I would sleep next to her and she would just, every time she would just look at me at least once a day and tell me the story of Hazrat Khadija who had two husbands before she met the Holy Prophet. Yeah. And, you know, she was like, so she was my um, feminist rock <laughs> Even before I knew what feminism was, I don't think she knew what feminism was. This was just good sense to her. This is how women should be. And I, and I actually think that if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't have been able to do the things that I did. Because the first time I got divorced, when she heard what was happening in my marriage, she's the one who told my mom, you need to bring her back. And you need to tell her to bring all her jewelry with her. Because I think she knew even before my mom did that this is over. And this won't say right. And this is yeah. How, yeah. And even the second time, I remember her calling my uh, ex-husband's mother, and it was Valentine's Day. And she called, her and she, she my grandmother had been out for dinner with her daughters. <laughs> and she came home, and she was so upset. She said, she called up my uh, ex-mother-in-law and said, you know, I've just been out to these restaurants, and all these couples have sat there, and there's a little candles, the the middle, you know, they're all having these romantic dinners and what are you doing? You know, what are you doing to your son's life? You know, she was a strong woman. She went to went back to university after her husband died and studied, she had a degree in Arabic and Islamic studies. Wow. She raised seven daughters who she put six of them through university and her son went on to medical school. I think I was lucky to be so, have as this role model, this very very staunch Muslim Pakistani woman who showed me the best of this culture and this religion in a time where British society maybe didn't value that. Hmm. But she was my beacon of light. And those kind of six weeks I would spend in Karachi every year, they kind of they lit up my life, I think. Yeah. Saima, post-Brexit, how has British society evolved and how much of it impacts you and communities of color? So we're still sort of waiting to see what this turns into. The feeling of Brexit from the minute the vote happened has been 
it's been hard because it feels as if people of colour are not welcome mm. or immigrants are not welcome. There was a very strong feeling of that. The country became so divided along those lines. And I, I mean, I, I live in London, so I live in a very mixed area. And all of my friends, regardless of race, were um, anti-Brexit. You know, they were all Remainers. They wanted to stay. It's been really interesting to hear the vitriol that comes from the other side. The most interesting thing for me is that I have a cousin who's called Paul, who lives in Yorkshire, in Leeds, and his father was my daya. That means he was my father's elder brother, and he married a woman called Margaret around the time I was born, and they had a son called Paul. And Paul is a very working-class man, and he lives a very kind of ordinary life, and he's got, I think he's got three children as well now. But he is a he's a Brexiteer. He was very pro-Brexit and he's very anti-immigration. Mm. And I had this conversation with him and I said, Paul, but our our grandfather came here. He in his head, he said, no, but our grandfather was different. And I think for him, it is simply a case of money. It is because in parts of the country, there is such high levels of deprivation, poverty and a lack of investment that people are looking for something to blame. And what they blamed is the other. And yeah. I absolutely believe that that's what's happened in parts of, of Britain. And London is not like that because it's flourishing. Yeah. And so Londoners don't get to feel that way. And so normally, like in the end, I ask my guests to describe America in their own words. From a Brit's point of view, how do you see America and what's going on politically and socially? Because I'm sure everybody around the world looks up to America in terms of, you know, democratic values and moral values. And I think some of that has been compromised over the last three years. So as a Brit, how do you see America right now? Oh, I'm heartbroken. I'm so heartbroken. I grew up reading a lot of African-American literature because when I was a kid, there was no literature that represented people who looked like me. Mm. So I grew up reading everything by my Malcolm X, every speech. I grew up reading Maya Angelou and I loved these things. And I had this idea of American society and change. And uh, East of Eden, there was a great passage about in there about how America is this country of extremes. And that's why people bring change. And I was a huge fan of Obama. And I'm just heartbroken to see the state of it now. But I'm hopeful as well. Mm. So hopeful. We are all hoping for a better future, yes. uh, hopefully soon. In the end, how do you think writers can contribute to discussions around social issues in ways that other professions cannot? I think writing is, is extremely powerful. Mm. So in a way that news reporting isn't, because stories are what change the world. Stories whisper to us. We read them in a very personal setting, alone, and they just lodge themselves in a heart. And slowly they help us to change. And so I think telling stories of how we feel and what we see as the future um, is an extremely powerful tool. Thank you so much, Saima. This was wonderful. And thank you for your time. And I believe it's what, like four o'clock in Britain? It is. Thank you so much. Thank you <laughs> for having me on. 
Thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to tune in next week. Just a reminder, we are on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at immigrantly underscore pod and on Instagram at immigrantly pod. And we have a Patreon and a GoFundMe. I've said it a million times. I can't do this without your support. So do consider donating. Until next time, stay connected. Stay connected.